Let's pray, and uh, then we will uh, once again engage with the Word of God. Father in heaven, uh, we praise and thank you for another Sunday, a beautiful day today that you have given. We thank you, Lord, that you have gathered us in our chairs, or perhaps we're standing in front of a screen. Uh, Lord, we long for the day, once again, when we can physically regather together, and that's coming soon. And so we thank you, Lord, for uh, preserving us, sustaining us spiritually, helping us, being faithful to us during this entire difficult season that we have had. And Father, we, we know that you will continue to be faithful toward us. Now as we go to your word again, Lord, we pray your Spirit's help. We know, Lord, that your word is a countercultural word. It is a subversive word. Lord, your aim is to uh, be against the world for the world, in essence. You are redeeming your world, but you are not content to leave the world as it is uh, in its settled arrangements. You want to overturn that and bring something new. And so today, Lord, as we open your word, we pray that we would listen hard for the newness that you desire from us as your kingdom people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, we have really the foundation blocks for the entire Bible. Among other things, in, in these chapters, we have the record of God creating the world and God also creating human beings to live in that world. And there are very profound, very penetrating insights given to us in these opening chapters of Scripture about being human, what it is to be human. And there is divine insight also given to us in these chapters as to why, as C. John Collins puts it, why our present experience, the experience we're living right now, our present experience is so different from what we find in Genesis chapter 2. Well, I want us to focus our attention this morning on just two verses of these opening chapters of Genesis. These two verses give us some very deep insight into ourselves, into our tendencies as human beings who live after the fall of humanity into sin and prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the two verses that I have in mind this morning are verses 12, 12 and 13 of Genesis chapter 3. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Genesis chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. But just to give us some context here, Verse 12 is Adam's answer to the question that God poses to him in verse 11. When God asks Adam, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? In verse 12, Adam answers. He says to God, the woman whom you gave to be with me she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Now, 
Just to be crystal clear here, Adam was personally guilty of sin in this moment. Adam had transgressed God's law. And if there's any doubt about that, that doubt evaporates, essentially, when we go to Romans 5, verses 12 through 19, where the Apostle Paul makes very sure that we understand that Adam was indeed guilty of transgression in this moment of Genesis 3. So, Adam has done wrong here. Adam has sinned against God. But what does Adam do in this moment? As God asks whether he had eaten from the tree that God had forbidden Adam to eat from. What does Adam do here? Well, what he does is he attempts, watch this, to shift the blame away from himself onto Eve and onto God. Did you eat from the tree, Adam? The woman whom you gave to be with me, God, she gave me the fruit and I ate. It was Eve's fault, God. And God, you are the one who gave Eve to me. Maybe you regret that now, God. Maybe that wasn't the best move on your part, God, since Eve has caused this problem. Well, friends, the first question we might ask here is, has Adam forgotten who it is he's talking to? How absolutely brazen of Adam to pretend that he can hide his guilt from God God who sees all and God who knows all. Adam is simply compounding his guilt here as he tries to deceive God and shift the blame. And how absolutely appalling for Adam to so crassly here, to so crassly throw Eve under the bus like he does here. Eve, who only 15 verses ago, Adam had lovingly called bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now, Adam is indicting his lover, Eve, for his own transgression. The world is literally falling apart here. What's Adam doing in this moment? Well, let's deepen into this even more. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. What did Adam try to do after he ate from the tree? Adam tried to hide himself physically from God. Now, Adam is trying to hide himself verbally 
from God. You see, Adam cannot tolerate the painful sense of his own sin. And so he attempts to flee from it in verbal fashion. Jesus may as well have been commenting on Adam here in Genesis 3.12 when Jesus said in John 3.20, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. What is Adam trying to do here in Genesis 3? He's trying in desperate fashion to flee from the light. And in the same moment that Adam attempts to flee like this from his own responsibility, he simultaneously, simultaneously attacks. He attacks the one who was his nearest and dearest companion. He attacks Eve. And so note this well. We need to note this. In Adam's response here in verse 12, we have this simultaneous fleeing and attacking. Fleeing and attacking. The imagery that came into my mind here as I read this verse was me in my backyard a couple of years ago coming close to a buzzing hornet's nest with hornet spray. In the same moment... I both attacked the nest with the spray, and I fled away, not wanting to get stung. Attack and flee. Adam flees and attacks at the same time here. Or as Cornelius Plantinga has it, Adam, he says, assaults and evades at the same time. He assaults and he evades. Or in the words of G.C. Burkauer, Adam accuses and excuses at the same time. He accuses Eve and he tries to excuse himself. And why? Because the sense of his own sin against God is just too much for Adam to bear. Adam hopes to avoid being held accountable for his own sin. Adam holds Eve accountable instead, and he holds God accountable also. Adam is the victim in all of this, according to Adam. Sure, Adam ends up saying, I ate at the tail end of his speech, but it's the two figures who are mentioned, and this is purposeful, the two figures who are mentioned at the front of his speech, Eve and God, who Adam claims are really to blame here. Adam minimizes his own part. Adam's gaze is fixed out there, outside of himself. They are to blame. Adam is quite willing to condemn others. Adam refuses to look inward and do the very uncomfortable work of grappling with his own failure. 
Adam was made in God's image. But as Greg Beale has pointed out, here, after eating from the tree, Adam more images the serpent. The serpent had used deceptive arguments as he had spoken to Adam and Eve. Now Adam follows suit and uses deceptive arguments as he speaks to God. Adam is imaging the serpent. Things in the world have gone terribly, terribly wrong. After Adam and Eve had enjoyed the pristine conditions of Genesis chapter 2, what's happened here now in very short order is that love for neighbor has flown out the window Adam blames his neighbor Eve for his own sin. And love for God has also experienced a catastrophic interruption as Adam tries to pull the wool over God. Never a good idea. What's happened here, friends, is that there has been a vandalization of shalom to use Plantinga's phrase, a vandalization of peace. And in verse 13, when God turns to Eve, after talking to Adam, turns to Eve and asks, what is this that you have done? Eve tries the same sort of maneuver that Adam had tried. Sorry, Eve blames her sin on the serpent. The devil made me do it. Eve says to God, the serpent deceived me. Notice, the serpent deceived me. The serpent first, he's to blame, and I ate. It was the serpent's fault first, and then only then was it mine, says Eve. More blame shifting, more playing the victim. Well, of course, down in verses 17 through 19, God is having none of this blame-shifting and victim-playing that is attempted by the couple. After addressing the serpent, God then addresses Eve, and he lays out the consequences for her transgression. And then God, after that, addresses Adam and lays out the consequences for Adam's sin as well. Now, friends, we stress here that this is not simply an ancient story in a book that we can conveniently hold away from us at arm's length. No, God in these verses we need to see and understand, God is describing us. He's interpreting us. Every single one of us. God is describing every human being who has lived on earth following the eating of the fruit except for Jesus Christ. Listen to this sentence from L. Gregory Jones who wrote a book on Christian forgiveness. Jones says this, as he's reflecting on the story of Genesis 3, he says, quote, 
Adam and Eve provide an archetype for our tendency to justify ourselves, to play the role of judge by identifying others as those in need of repentance and ourselves as either righteous ones or helpless victims, which carries with it its own tendency toward self-righteousness. Close quote. I'm going to give that to you one more time because I think there's a lot there. Jones says, quote, Adam and Eve, in that part of Genesis that we just read, Adam and Eve provide an archetype for our tendency to justify ourselves, to play the role of judge by identifying others as those in need of repentance and ourselves as either righteous ones or helpless victims, which carries with it its own tendency towards self-righteousness. As Charles Chaput has pointed out, some of the perverse qualities that are rooted in our fallen nature are these a pretense to goodness, a pretense to goodness, a perversely moralistic scapegoating, and self-deception. Again, rooted in our fallen nature are a pretense to goodness, a perversely moralistic scapegoating, and self-deception. The question is, Do I see those qualities in myself? Without looking around at anybody else, do I see myself in the Adam of Genesis 3, verse 12? It's terrifying. But I must come to grips with myself in this verse as in a mirror. I must recognize that with regard to my own sins that I have committed, I am more than capable of fleeing responsibility and scapegoating others like Adam did, accusing others while excusing myself. I've done that so many times. I am very capable of playing the victim and pointing the finger out there in a vain attempt to exonerate myself. Oh, yes. As Fleming Rutledge has pointed out, our own judgment about ourselves almost always leads to the place where we pronounce ourselves innocent. And so God is describing you, and God is describing me. In Genesis 3, verse 12, he's describing each and every one of us how we all gravitate toward playing the victim, and each of us has to own that tendency because it is a divinely revealed fact. One of the things that is so deeply concerning about our current cultural moment is the high value that is being placed on victimhood. 
Now, let's be very clear here. Are there victims of crimes, victims of injustice, victims of a variety of atrocities and disasters in our world today? Of course there are. Yes, victims exist today, and yes, victims have always existed. And on the other side of the coin, there are people in our world who would clearly classify as oppressors. There is no doubt about any of that, and we would be silly, of course, to deny those realities. Those realities are perpetually with us in a fallen world And ministering the gospel both to uh, victims and to oppressors. This should be a great and real concern for us as Christians. It has to be, in fact. But the alarm that I am raising this morning concerns what Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning have called victimhood culture and its prevalence in our day. Victimhood culture culture. In their 2018 book, The Rise of Victimhood Culture, Microaggressions, Safe Spaces, and the New Culture Wars, Campbell and Manning argue that within a a given society, you have what is called, what they call a moral culture or moral cultures. The three primary Moral cultures that they discuss are honor culture, dignity culture, and victimhood culture. So let's discuss each of these just very briefly here. So in honor culture, when you are slighted by somebody, when somebody offends you, in an honor culture, you tend to be sensitive to the slight And the way that you typically deal with the slight in an honor culture is to aggressively guard your honor by engaging in a violent retaliation against the person or the persons who have offended you. In an honor culture, maintaining your reputation forcefully is a very important value honor culture. In dignity culture, which by the way, it's important to point this out, dignity culture has been the prevailing moral culture in the West up to this point. In a dignity culture, things are very different than they are in an honor culture. In a dignity culture, having thick skin is something that is valued. That is, when somebody slights you or offends you or insults you, there is less touchiness and more self-restraint than there is in an honor culture. Nonviolence is valued in a dignity culture. Insults are shrugged off more in a dignity culture. The old saying, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words or names will never hurt me. That saying applies to dignity culture. Now, in victimhood culture, which is on the ascendancy in the West today, 
we go back to the touchiness that is part of honor culture. In victimhood culture, there is a high degree of touchiness. In victimhood culture, there is a very low tolerance for insults or perceived insults. There is a low tolerance, in fact, for discomfort of any kind in a victimhood culture. But instead of engaging in a knife fight to settle a dispute like you might do in honor culture, in victimhood culture, the tendency is to campaign third parties. University administrations, government agencies, etc., for support, and to do so, say Campbell and Manning, to do so in a way that advertises or exaggerates one's victimization. Close quote. Now, notice something about all three of these moral cultures. Let's just take them very briefly again, one by one. So in an honor culture, you value your honor. That's what you value. In a dignity culture, you value your dignity. In victimhood culture, you value your victimhood. In victimhood culture, there is a moral value. There is a moral status that is placed on being a victim. As Campbell and Manning say, the emphasis in victimhood culture is on the moral worth of victims and their allies while condemning the vice of privilege and the evil of oppression, close quote. So friends, here's what's happening in the West. If once we valued having citizens, citizens in our society who worked for the betterment of our society, now a value is placed on victims with their grievances. Or as Douglas Murray has so keenly observed, if once the heroic was sought after, valued in our society, now what's sought after and held high is victimhood. The more you can demonstrate your victimhood, the more social capital, the more social clout you will have. Victimhood has become valorized, to quote Pluckrose and Lindsay. In another place, they comment that victimhood has been sanctified, is the word that they use. According to Carl Truman, victimhood just might be the key virtue in the new religion of ideological social justice. Now, as kingdom people, we pause here to evaluate and critique uh, the culture of victimhood. And we do that through a Christian lens. First of all, we contend as kingdom people, I want you to listen, we contend that any purported clean division of groups in society, so clean division between victim groups and oppressor groups, cleanly divided, that, that is a questionable business. 
It's often far too simplistic of an ideal to cleanly divide whole groups of people like that. Now, here's just one complication. As L. Gregory Jones has pointed out, within a single relationship, I want you to think about this, within a single relationship, a single person can be both victim and victimizer at the same time. Jones writes, quote, the attempt to divide the world into tidy categories of oppressor and oppressed or victimizer and victim oversimplifies the more complex realities of histories and habits of sin and evil. Close quote. He says, while it is undeniably true that many people have suffered and continue to suffer immensely through exploitation and violence, systemic and otherwise, while that's true, he says, none of us, none of us is free from the trap of being both victimizer and victim. In one and the same relationship, I may be both oppressor and victim, though obviously to different degrees. Close quote. I think it's worth our careful consideration, friends, that God teaches us in his word that the same victimized people named Israel, victimized under Pharaoh while they were in Egypt, that they also ended up being victimizer in precisely the same way that they had been victimized. For example, we read in Judges 1 verse 28 that Israel put the Canaanites to forced labor, just as Israel themselves had been subjected to forced labor under Pharaoh in Egypt. I know it's an unpopular teaching these days, but because we are talking about human beings here with a fallen nature, a victim can become an oppressor himself or herself. In our culture today, there is a power that comes along with victimhood, and power tempts human beings to act in all sorts of oppressive and vengeful ways. But here's another tragic effect that can happen when I view myself as victim, when I take victim as my basic identity. A bitter fruit that can grow is that things like bitterness toward others, resentment toward others, even hatred toward others, these things can grow in me like a festering disease. In the words of Scott Allen, if your story tells you that your primary identity is victim, your life will be marked by bitterness, resentment, grievance, and entitlement. And doesn't Ephesians 4.31 command us as kingdom people to let all 
How much? All bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from us along with all malice. As people of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, we act differently. And we look different, and we operate by a different set of values. We do not accept the fragility that is being advocated and promoted in our culture today. I want you to listen to Oz Guinness here. He writes this, Followers of Christ flinch at times from the pain of wounds and the smart of slights. Of course we do. But he says, that cost is in the contract of the way of the cross. Let me read you some words and commands to you from your God, my born-again believing friend. Commands and words which outline a God-honoring response to the wounds and the sufferings and the trials that we encounter in this life. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James 1, verses 2 through 4. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. How about this one? 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. This light momentary affliction, light momentary affliction, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Philippians 1, verse 29. Os Guinness has gone so far as to say that playing the victim 
which is so encouraged by our culture today and so strongly tempting for each and every one of us. Playing the victim, says Guinness, is really a denial of Jesus Christ and his call to discipleship. And I think that those passages we just read are supportive of Guinness's point. I think it's perhaps worth our while to consider, just for a minute, the shortest essay that G.K. Chesterton ever wrote. The context here is that the London Times once solicited essayists, writers, to write and submit essays on the topic, What's Wrong with the World? I'll read you G.K. Chesterton's essay in full. Here's how Chesterton answered the question, what's wrong with the world? He wrote, Dear Sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. As people of Christ's kingdom, we affirm that in this world there are victims. Victims of injustice, victims of violence, victims of natural disasters, victims of war, victims of human evil of all sorts. We affirm that. And we affirm that there are likewise oppressors who oppress their victims. We affirm that as kingdom people, we have a God-given mandate to care for those who have been victimized and to share the gospel with their oppressors. But we deny the program of ideological social justice, which both on the left side of the ideological spectrum and on the right side as well, wants to categorically and cleanly divide entire groups of people into irredeemable oppressors on one side and the innocent oppressed on the other. We contend as kingdom people that it is dangerous, dangerous business for a group or groups of people to scapegoat another group. The human condition will never be righted by fallen human beings scapegoating other fallen human beings. Never. We understand as kingdom people that the only effective scapegoat whoever has been or whoever will be The only one who exists, who can bring about the cleansing and the purification that all of us need as human beings is the divine scapegoat, Jesus Christ, who has taken on himself the sins not just of one group, but of the entire world. In the words of Joshua Mitchell, it is the divine scapegoat Jesus who, quote, relieves us of the need to scapegoat other mortal groups, 
who allows us to look upon one another as equals so that we might build a world together. Close quote. Adam blamed Eve for his sin. Adam blamed God for his sin. Adam pointed the finger away from himself and played the victim. Eve blamed the serpent for her sin. Eve also played the victim. As we walk through this life, you and I are strongly tempted almost every day to play the victim and to campaign for our own innocence But each and every one of us knows in our heart, each and every one of us knows in our heart that we are not innocent before God, no matter who we are. We know that deep in our soul, no matter which group we have been assigned to by ideological social justice. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has taken the blame for our sin to the cross where he died to forgive our sin as our crucified substitute. The believer's sin has been judged on the cross. Amen and hallelujah. Jesus is our only scapegoat the only scapegoat given by God for humanity. Jesus is the only innocent victim, a willing victim on our behalf. And even then, he's not a victim because he's an operator in the cross. If you have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, here's my challenge to you as we wrap this up. My challenge to you this very week is simply this, my believing friend, to go forth and live out the vows of your baptism. Christ's redemption and his grace not only have to do with our life in the next world, they have to do with how we live our life right now in the present world. So as a kingdom person then, go this week, practice forgiveness, practice kindness, practice grace, take responsibility, bear one another's burdens, Encourage your neighbor who is traveling through the same bent world that you are. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you as we look in your word, as we look at Jesus on the cross, that we are all on a level playing field as human beings. Not one of us is more righteous than the next person in your economy. We all need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us this week to look at another person. Look them in the eye, no matter who they are, no matter which group that ideological social justice has placed them in. Help us to look at every single human being that we come in contact with as an image bearer, as a person created by you wonderfully and magnificently. 
and help us to love our neighbor. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.